This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Uh, um, um, within the black community 
excuse me, right? That have that have um, maybe had some level of privilege and maybe have done well in some schools. But by and large, right, this has not been an experience that our community has enjoyed. And that's going back, right, again to the 1600s. Also, there never was a time where my community was not deeply immersed in economic poverty or structural violence and or high unemployment. And that's from the 1600s to the 21st century. And we know, right, with respect to the literature and or the social sciences, that there is nothing that works better to produce positive academic in outcomes, excuse me, in low-income black communities than quality economic opportunity. We don't know anything else that predicts that better. Keep in mind, we try everything else besides what we know works best. School to prison pipelines, a system sustained by institutional and structural racism, which is a vicious form of structural violence. And or the school to prison pipeline, right, is sustained in a type of white privilege and sustained as a function of white supremacy. And I don't mean to challenge anyone's sensibility. I do intend on having an honest conversation about how to address this. This tightly organized system of educational inequality, right, mostly benefits other people besides low-income black communities, right? This is a definition from the ACLU. I actually work closely with the ACLU. If I wasn't here, I'd actually be at an event with them, but I told them to hold off, and, 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 and I've sent my people there, so, right, they're, they're, they're doing some stuff in Wilmington as we speak. Right, but they define it at the national level. The school to prison pipeline refers to the policies and practices that push our nation's uh, school children, especially our most at-risk children, out of classrooms and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. This pipeline reflects the prioritization of incarceration over education. That's their statement, right? So schools playing a direct role, right? sending the most vulnerable and poorest children, usually of color, into the criminal justice system. Wow. And trust me, nobody's losing any sleep behind this. This is par for the course. This is and has always been the status quo. Characteristics. Let me just first read this right quote by Marion Elvin Elderman. Right? Hopefully, we all know her. If you don't, I strongly encourage you to get to know her. Right? And she argues, and I quote: Black students make up 18% of students in public schools in 2009 and 2010, but were 40% of students who received one or most uh, one or more school out of school suspensions. A black public school student suspended every four seconds. When black students are so often left behind and pushed out, it should not surprise us that black students are more than twice as likely to drop out of school as, as white students. Each school day, 763 black high school students drop out of school. Wow. So let me say this up front. I may say this at some point during the presentation, right? So what do we know as social scientists? And keep in mind, we don't shoot from the hip. We're not theoretical scholars, at least most of us are. Our arguments actually have to be based on data. Now, that doesn't suggest that theoretical arguments are, are, 
important. And so I am suggesting is we are moving from empirical sources of data to make these arguments, right? So, so, so what do we know in the school to prison pipeline literature? What do we know about dropout rates? Well, we know once again, right? We know once again that opportunity is playing a role with regard to dropout rates. And probably the most predictive variable outside of economic opportunity in and of itself, right, that leads or predicts school dropout rates, particularly amongst low-income black and brown male students, are the schools themselves. Oh, we know that. <coughs> when I ran into this finding in the literature, right, because I, I work a lot with folk shoulders of my superintendent friends, my principal friends, and other school official friends, and, and I said, I said, really? I said, I said, what, what I found was that the schools are, are, are most are, are most predictive of, right, removing the children. Not some kid that's sitting at home, some black male child sitting in the projects, watching some hip-hop videos, smoking a blunt, right, and deciding not to go to school because he thinks it's cool. Right? That's tugging at the worst possible imagination, right? The worst possible conceptualization of black children. That does, by, by, that does not explain by far why the children are actually leaving. And when I spoke to my educational friends, right, they said, oh, for the record, it's true. And in all fairness, their, their argument is this. Usually the kids that were creatively and innovatively finding a way to remove from schools, typically they are an academic right, or a behavioral problem. We know they don't know their rights, educational rights. We know that there's not going to be anyone to advocate on their behalf. <coughs> we don't know what else to do with them, even though we are aware that what we're doing is illegal. Yes. Scores of conversations off the record. That's what's happening inside these schools. Once again, no one's losing any sleep behind this. And also, once again, this has been going on for centuries. These communities. We also know there's about a 50 to 70 percent dropout rate in low-income black and brown communities that correlates with the unemployment rate, particularly of males. Right. So I know we're pulling our hair out over, you know, what we did during the Great Recession over this seven, eight, nine, ten percent unemployment rate. Right. But unemployment rates in these communities, and I will show you, right, roughly are between 50 to 70 percent, particularly amongst black men. They have no idea what we're talking about. That's before, during, and after the Great Recession. Blacks have probably lost more jobs with the males under Obama than they did George Bush. And that's no knock against Obama. I support him. More black males, right? Black males were the only group to lose jobs during the 1990s, during a time when there's supposed to be great economic prosperity. They have no idea what we're talking about. They have been left and locked out of quality opportunities. We know that the dropout or pushout rate ranks higher for black males than teenage than all teenage males combined. We know that 72% of black male dropout or pushout rates are, are, are unemployed either because they were incarcerated or could not find work. 72%, we know that. We know that about two-thirds of, of all incarcerated black men have less than 12th grade education. In Delaware, it's at least at about 75%. One, 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 uh, uh, institution reached out to me when they published that finding for me in the newspaper and said it's probably 
probably about 90% in their respective institution, 90% of black men within a prison less than a high school education. We also know that about 85% of all adult males, all adults, excuse me, most adult males, right, I believe the finding is in Delaware, uh, 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 don't even match or meet the ninth grade math and reading standards, who are in prison, who are in prison, 85% of them. It's cutting across this country. And we know that about 19 to 30% of black students who are white in school. One time. The first study that I want to share with you this evening is a study that I actually conducted in Patterson, New Jersey, a really rough town. Lots of shoot activity, and also in Harlem, New York City, where I'm originally from. Right? All right, let's get a deeper understanding uh, before we dive into that data with regard to that study. Let's get a deeper understanding from some other scholars, right? A theoretical, a theoretical understanding or framework or analysis, right, of the school to prison pipeline before we actually look at that data for that study. President et al. in 2014 argued that there are at least two basic ways that students get caught up in this unjust, illegal, and unconstitutional school to prison pipeline. Path one asserts that students are funneled through the system through schools, academic, and disciplinary policies. Academic and disciplinary policies. And then path two asserts that this system takes place out of schools, in the communities, directly by way of or by way of police and the judicial system, <coughs> thus impacting their ability to remain in schools. Morgan all argue that school-based arrests and referrals in a variety of ways play a major role in the illegal and unconstitutional removal of mostly low-income black and brown male students. And just a nice theoretical conceptualization, right, of what we already knew, what was going on, what we already knew in terms of the community, what's going on. Not to mention, lots of money is made on this as well. That's another discussion, hopefully later, the presentation. <clears throat> Sites of resiliency theory, a theory that I've come up with and been publishing on extensively, right? We argue that as a function of the over-policing and the militarization of schools, that schools lack, uh, uh, and, and that we argue that as a function of the over-policing militarization of schools, the schools lack of academic or college preparation of these students. Also, the schools lack of quality resources, including teachers and other school officials, that it makes logical sense students to adapt and acquire a street identity. I'm not arguing that it's right to sell drugs or to harm someone. That's not what we mean in terms of our conversation around resilience. We do mean that it is adaptive and that it's logical. And it shouldn't surprise us that they're running to the streets as a way to deal with this opportunity in or out of the school. It is a crime is coping, and it is a site of resilience. So this theory, for good or for bad, has been catching a lot of traction in the social science literature. 
industry identity is a phenomenological term typically viewed as an ideology centered on personal, social, and economic survival. The ideology has at least two dimensions. The ideology can be passed on intergenerational, from older, usually to younger people in the streets, can be passed on from peer to peer, and in some instances, from younger generations to older generations. A street identity is also understood as a set of activities, illegal and bonding activities. So on one end, you can find the men and women organizing social events in the community, taking care of the community, through legal proceeds mostly. And on the other hand, right, you can find them engaging in illegal activities. This is the way, right, I'm a social psychologist, right, but this is the way that they think about it, theoretically. Structural violence theory will round off our theoretical framing for this evening, and or structural violence theory is also, right, another few theoretical framework that I use to contextualize the work. Because the community, right, they want this framing. So when I go inside a community, I have to do it from their perspective. Structural violence theory argues, right? Galatong argued in 1969, he defined this, right, as a system. Uh, and he says, he says, ultimately, I'm paraphrasing, but ultimately he argues, right, that structural violence theory is how structural institutions or systems actively prevent individuals, groups, and or communities from meeting their basic needs through policies, laws, other forms of regulation. <coughs> like the system is alive and active. And more importantly, right, and again, I don't mean to challenge anyone's sensibilities, but keep this in mind. We're talking about structural violence theory and we're taking it seriously, right? <coughs> I often say to these communities and my colleagues, another way of understanding this theory and what Galton was ultimately trying to argue, also I would argue, uh, what Derek Bell was trying to argue, check him out if you haven't, uh, critical race theory in particular, right? Also, Michelle Alexander had a wonderful lunch with her. She supports the project as well, right? What they all arguing is this, economic poverty is required so that you and I can enjoy our privilege. That's what the new Jim Crow is talking about, I promise you. So we sustain millions of people in poverty so that we can benefit from our privilege. That's why it keeps going on. That's why the schools never get better. That's why Bernie Sanders is doing pretty well. Because he's speaking and he's touched like a chord amongst those who don't have. And have been mostly ignored, even by well-intentioned well-meaning people. Our first question, question that we'll deal with tonight for this first study, how do you identify black uh, boys in this particular study frame experiences with teachers and other school officials? Keep in mind, I organize my work through participatory action research methodology. PAR is a methodological framework. It is not a single method. It is a framework, and it requires investigators to include on the research team members of the population being studied. Action research was coined by social psychologist Kurt Lewin, I'm actually fourth generation Lewin, right, Lewinian scholar, direct uh, a lineage in the, you know, in the academic sense. 
right? And, 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 it, and it requires you, he argued, then we need to start putting real people on the research teams. And you include them in every phase of the research project, be it the development of theory, method, design, quantitative and qualitative analysis, teach them regression. They are not to be decoration on the research project. This becomes a way to equip the group with a viable skill set so they can transition to upward mobility. And we have great success doing it. I will show you towards the end of the project on the presentation. Treat them like a doctoral student and pay them at the same rate. Real <coughs> In addition to it being a research experience, PAR is also a social justice experience. In addition to creating and I mean, collecting and analyzing some fancy data, we're also required to organize an action or social activism response to the data that we have collected. This is the methodological design from the first study, right? <clears throat> So keep in mind, we, all, we collected surveys from 371 men um, in these two communities from the street corners. We went to where they sold guns at. We went to where they sold guns at. We went to hot sites, also warm sites, and also cool sites to find active men in the streets. They received $10 for completing a survey and $20 for completing an interview. Interviews lasted between an hour or two. I organized a part team of four active gentlemen from the streets of Patterson, New Jersey. Right? And then this one. So what do we find? <clears throat> Approximately, right? Let's get inside their minds. What do these guys think about school? Right? How do we drop down and so forth and so on, as you might imagine. But what do they actually think about school? surprised how many research projects actually analyze that question. <laughs> right, so what do we find? We found that approximately 76%, 76, approximately 76% of the sample agree or strongly agree with the item, I care a lot about my grades. These are the drug dealers. We found that nearly 85% of the sample believe that being smart or intelligent was important or very important. Approximately 81% believe that going to a good school was important or very important. These are the guys in the gangs. These are the guys who dropped out. This is what they think about school. Nearly 90% of our respondents felt that getting a good education was important or very important. In the United States, a low-income student has the same chance of a good education as a wealthy student. Well, about 67% of the respondents felt that getting a uh, uh, of our respondents felt that uh, I, I, I strongly disagreed or disagreed with this item. Let's listen to their voices. Most of the boys in the study across methods did not view schools as nurturing or supporting the supportive learning environment and generally expressed feelings of alienation and frustration inside their schools. Several of the young men described school personnel, teachers, disciplinarians, school security as racist and phony. Even if they were black, they may have referred to them as being racist as well. This left several participants feeling unprepared to pursue quality educational opportunity after high school. Wabins, they ain't preparing this for the world. 
As black people, we need to go to college if we're going to be something higher in life than just this high school diploma. What they're teaching us in here is basically nothing. We have like low budget and adequate computer classes and stuff like that in here. You feel me like we can't use a computer to like learn new stuff for them. What they're teaching us has nothing to do with what's outside in the real world. If we go to college, we're not going to be prepared for college. Iceberg, 16, ninth grade. Me personally, when I leave my high school, I know I ain't going to be able to go to college because of what they taught here. I want to be in something like, like a lab technician, computer science, so when I leave here, I'm going to go to, to an institute like at DeVry or Sotoma. June, <clears throat> or, say the question, what are some of the things teachers have said to you? June, 17, 11th grade. When you graduate, when you get out of high school, you ain't going to do blank. So your teacher told you that you're that you ain't going to do. I, Joan, I ain't going to be, I ain't never going to be, but in jail, because I look like a hustler, I'm going to be hustling. As soon as they say that, I just sit there and start laughing. They, they teach me going all crazy about it. Split, 19, 12th grade. Seriously, our school is, teachers don't really like care about you. Do you think most teachers respect black boys in high school? Nasty teachers in there who really don't care. You're failing out, you ask who's gonna help, and, and they are not trying to help you. A lot of teachers in there can't get along with Okay, let's look at a question really quickly. Right, so we asked all these gentlemen who filled out the survey to actually answer the question at the bottom, answer all the questions. We're gonna analyze uh, the, uh, number five, that question. How true do you think this comic is, right? This comic message is in your school. Keep in mind, this is supposed to be George Bush senior, right, and he's saying, I'm here to emphasize values, remember, work hard, aim high, and always use your parents' connections. You should also know the street park team um, um, played a role in organizing, right, the server, right? and that's why we have, you know, really creative um, items um, like this. So how do they respond? So they would write, right, on the block, they would write things like this in the survey packet. None of them talked about this notion of parent connections. And or they felt like they felt like that question spoke strongly to notions of parent connections. And they would write things like kids that have wealthy parents don't have to do much to succeed. Kids need connections to get ahead in life. It's who you know to get what you want. This comic is saying that you you gotta bend and cheat to make it. Have a PhD, three masters, a postdoctoral degree. Right? One of the most educated people on the planet, you know, at the risk of sounding arrogant. So I say all of that only to say this. That sounds pretty smart to me. It is who you know, in addition to you working hard as well. They also racialize, and I'll show you those data, right? If you read the paper, you can read about it. They also racialize notions of parent connections. They were able to make a connection between, right, which parents have connections, particularly as a function of race, and which parents don't. They also noted, right, that nearly nearly 85% of the sample also also noted or and or believed that being smart or intelligent, or, or excuse me, that having the right connection was a very important or, or, or important thing to have. Okay, cool, cool, cool. All right. Also, 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 um, we asked them to respond to this item. Describe what you imagine to be the worst possible situation in school. Right? We need the survey also to wealthier, whiter student populations. 
and, and you know, the worst generally the worst possible school scenario for most of them had more to do with no uh, failing out of school, not making it to their number one choice in college, right? And that's fine. It should be that should be the worst possible situation. But for these guys, right, they didn't write anything like that. <laughs> the worst possible situation for them in school were like getting jumped. Getting jumped by a lot of kids. When I got jumped at school. When I got jumped, right, or physically assaulted by 60 people. I went to one of these high schools, and those schools in elementary school in my dad. The state actually ended up taking over my school. That happened at my school all the time in the 1990s. Right? That's happening all across America. Just imagine going to a school like that. And that's why we would argue a street identity inside these school environments are, in fact, adaptive. They actually make sense. So I'm on the second study. And before I get into that, I'm going to show you a trailer. I want to say definitely thank you um, to Nicole Seymour for being here. She actually worked on this project, which we're going to talk to you about. We're actually working on a paper for publication from the data, secondary data analysis. So this is Nicole Seymour, I'm glad you accepted it here at the law school. And I do want to say hello to Janet. Okay, cool, cool, cool. She's also from the University of Delaware as well. So let's just take a, a look at this video trailer before we actually jump into the data. Smart people. 
into it. All right, so my next project that I, uh, I hope we finish up in the next 15 minutes is entitled People's Report. You can definitely check it out online, peoplesreport.com. We have a bunch of video trailers, we have music available. Uh, it's a very interactive um, website, right? These are the PAR members, right? Daryl is also a PAR member, but he was the leading PAR member or, or senior research associate. This is what they look like, right? So we've organized 15 people from the streets. There were seven um, institutional organizations involved with this, four nonprofits, three universities, and if I may add, um, the principal grant that we got. Yeah, the, the grants for the principal grant that we got was from the American Recovery Reinvestment Act, um, which is by Barack Obama for funding for this project. Really quickly, right? 12 men, three women, at or below the poverty line, all black American, all should identify. They've done anything that you can imagine. Sexual assault. Right? Uh, Ten Sunni Muslims. Right? The Muslim or Islamic faith is strong in these communities, particularly in a place like Philadelphia or Wilmington, Delaware. It's Malcolm X who actually the person who developed those areas. Right? And you know, when he was a nation of Islam, they eventually, those areas evolved into Sunni Muslim. There's a lot of infighting within the black community, definitely in the prison system that began since the late 1960s between the Sunnis. Both are still present in the communities, but Sunnis have taken over the much, much larger numbers. I think we're converted from the nation to, Sunni, to the Sunni faith. Age range spans between 20 to 48, mean age is 33, with regard to their educational status at the start of the project. One dropped out of high school, four earned a GED, three earned a high school diploma, five had some college, and two already had a bachelor's of art degree. Interestingly enough, two with the Bachelor of Art degree probably the most violent and most involved in terms of making money. That one reason why people came to the project with a Bachelor's of Arts degree was a millionaire by the time he was 17 years old. Right. So a more accurate reflection of what the streets look like. We were charged with the task of examining notions of physical violence in the city of Wilmington. Right? And 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 and, and Wilmington, Delaware. Um, um, and so I'm actually doing a secondary data analysis of the project around the school prison um, pipeline. We conducted our study, right, uh, uh, in these two neighborhoods, the east side and or south bridge or south Wilmington. Those, uh, so the neighborhood is roughly divided into about six or seven small neighborhoods. But those were the two neighborhoods in which we um, did our work in. And we wanted to go to the streets. We wanted to be very candid in New York, New Jersey, with previous study, but then the streets of Wilmington. Right, so um, we went into the streets of Wilmington to collect data from their perspective about what's going on. Right, so in Southbridge, according to Garrison and Kirby, nearly, nearly 40%, nearly 40%, right, or 40% or of Southbridge lives below the poverty line, with nearly 40% of residents making $15,000 or less per year. Let's see that one more time, in case that went by real fast, right? Nearly 40% of these residents in this neighborhood that I was asked to investigate, right? a lot of politicians involved with this study, from governor's office all the way down. And it's a very popular study, too, for what it's worth in the state of California. Right? Nearly 40% uh, of Southbridge live below the poverty line, and nearly 40% of residents make, make $15,000 or less. I'm trying to raise their family on $15,000. 
imagine. And, 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 and 56% of the residents had their high school diploma. At the time of the study, right, it's because of the People's Report that we're able to force the city to release its dropout data at the start of our, uh, during our study, right? Because they, in many respects, suppressing that data. We got the Board of Education involved at the state level. There's also a local level, and local level, right? And, and, and what we found eventually, they affirmed and, and the media covered extensively, was that 100% every last black male child and that neighborhood was dropping out of school. Years on end. Nobody moves into this. Nobody moves into this. 100% of them. So what do we know as social scientists? We know that any time, right, you find any population or any large numbers of any population doing any one thing, there's strong evidence that it's strong. No one population ever does any one thing. And the people that are smart in the city, right, at these things, right, when I bring this up, they don't say things like, oh, it's cultural, or the kids are doing something wrong. No, because, right, anyway, because the cultural arts center, which just falls under, keep in mind, was a major lawsuit brought, one of five school districts in the country, within recent time, within recent years, we're under federal investigation, and there's a lawsuit behind the ex uh, expulsion and suspension. It's not the boys, it's the schools. What do we find in the east side? What do we find in the east side? Well, we found that in the east side, track 17 is split up into three tracks, but we're in track 17. It revealed that 60% of households, 60% of households make less than $15,000 per year. Trust me, that Great Recession is laughable to these communities. This is like this before, during, and after. Right? This is happening all across the country, too. We also found, we also found that 44% of residents live below the poverty line with a median income of $11,500. About 51% of the residents have their high school diploma. 65% of black males in the city drop out of school. There are other blocks and neighborhoods, I'm certain, right, where you probably have anywhere between 90 to 100% black male dropout rate as well. The black uh, youth dropout rate is at about 60%. And it's driving all of the violence. Wilmington is one of the most violent cities in the country. Haven't met up there, I've been in a lot of tough places. I'm a scholar. Haven't been in any place like Wilmington. It's the third most violent city of its size. It's more violent than Baltimore, New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, right? We're talking about Chicago that has nothing on Wilmington, I promise you. And Los Angeles. Keep in mind, Chicago is in a, somewhere between a 30 to 40 year low on homicides. So we need to put it all in perspective. So how do we organize these 15? It's a two-month research, was across a two-month period, 18 research methods, workshops, across two months, 
three to four times per week for three to five hours per workshop. We do not water down the training. We train them like doctoral students on quantitative and qualitative methodology and analysis. And we train them in theory, methodology, data analysis, and social activism. We collected 520 surveys from the street corners of Wilmington, which is where they sold drugs at. We went to hot, warm, and cool sites, and we were met with overwhelming love. They organized an 18-page survey, the street park team. And we went to the streets. Uh, uh, they, they were really gave them five dollars in cash for the completed survey, took about a half an hour, 10 hours in cash for an hour to two hour long interview. We also gave them a lot of information on employment, educational, and counseling services as well, in addition to a consent form. This is our qualitative design, right? Uh, uh, um, so we collected, we uh, collected or um, conducted, excuse me, individual, dual, and group interviews. Again, between the ages of 18 to 35. So we asked everyone that we interviewed, right, in all of our studies, why do you go to the streets? Right? So we're collecting that data from city to city. Why are you going to the streets? Given that you know we'll end up, at some point you will need physical injury, incarceration, and or death. Short of it is, it's worth the risk, given how they're living. Third world living conditions. The city of Wilmington is one of the richest as bank, credit card, and corporate capital of the world. You should see the banking district in Wilmington. Oh my goodness. And they've also sponsored the project as well. <laughs> Ironically enough, well, they gave us a grant. Or one of the banks said. Right? One of the richest, but also it has some of the poorest neighborhoods in some parts of the world. This poverty, right, that I've seen in this community, oh my goodness. So Leandre, Leandre, he's a very, he's a famous, and locally famous, but very famous urban fiction writer for those of us who read that kind of work, right? And he captures the stories, kind of like a Donald Bryan in the streets of Wilmington, though, right? And he's also active in the streets. And when we ask him that question, he says so beautifully on our documentary, The People's Report, he says, basically finance and wanting better things for yourself. Board, uh, 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 we act like we don't see it, but boarded houses paint our neighborhoods, potholes paint our neighborhoods. That's telling me how they don't care about me. I gotta go home and four houses on my road is, road is boarded. It's like an eyesore to me. Now I'm looking for a release valve, any release valve. And guess what that release valve is? There's a liquor store in every corner in the These boarded up houses and these potholes and there's a food on every car and, and this is what I'm seeing. Damn, mom, because that ain't around because he's down P.O. Box 9561 or 1181 Paddock Road doing who knows how much time right. So he says, mom, is this all that we have? You know, damn. And, and, and he's very rhythmic in the way that he writes and also the way that he speaks, right? And I didn't even realize until the car members informed me, informed me that those two addresses are two of the, are two of the two largest prison industrial complexes in, in Delaware. Is stapled in his consciousness, the address.
Results strongly suggest that study participants are struggling with, 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 with educational and employment opportunities, right? Approximately 44%, 44% of the sample has less than a high school diploma, most of which, right, dropped out in high school. We also, we also found that, we have found that 60% of the sample, right, I'm starting to ask about their parent educational background, right? And, 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 and the sample argued that 60, about 60% of the sample argued that, that 40%, right, of, of, of their fathers either have no high school diploma or that, or that about 20% of their fathers, right, they, they just don't know because maybe they weren't, the fathers weren't in their lives. 60% either say they don't have a high school diploma, don't have a high school diploma, or they don't know. Jesus. And nobody's sleep. <laughs> we found that two-thirds, two-thirds, two-thirds of the men and women between the ages of 18 and 35 in this in these two communities, two-thirds of them were unemployed. Most of whom were actively looking. We found that nearly 70%, nearly 70% of the men in these neighborhoods that we collect data from were unemployed. And 62% of the women were also unemployed. A lot of the opportunities are subsidized, though, so they'll be much, they'll fare a little bit better than the men. Men are left on Also add, right? Scientifically, this is what we say at the pool, at the water cooler, at places like the University of Delaware. I'm sure they're saying it here too at Villanova, particularly in the social science departments. With this kind of structural violence, it wouldn't matter how hard they worked. Most of them are not getting out of that. See, people like me, I'm the probably largest most black folk too, that's where I'm from, so never people like me, because I come from these communities. My parents, my brothers were in the streets. Right? It would be statistic, a statistical impossibility that I needed every syllable for anybody, definitely them, to break that kind of structural violence. A person like me, statistically speaking, I am by far an exception. Participants, most participants felt schools were designed, in quotes, to, fall, to fail black children from Wilmington. Put another way, most participants felt that the lack of academic preparation for black children was pervasive and systemic. Thus, participants found it to be adaptive for some black students to engage in illegal activity. Given they perceived black children from Wilmington at best would receive a subpar educational experience. This is what Anthony says. <coughs> It's already programmed and designed to set us up for failure. And they know this. 55% is going to drop out. A lot of them is not going to run that race. So what's going to be the alternative? They're going to drop out. They're going to go right back to the streets. Why would I go get an education when Big Brother's pushing X, Y, or Z? Because 
Kyrie, Kyrie, was, was convinced that school officials, and in particular his principal, was not equipped to effectively work with low-income urban black children. And as a consequence, he notes that his principal's default response, or intervention, if you will, to address children, to address children who may have had behavioral challenges, was simply to suspend or expel them. Zero tolerance policies, which are not evenly applied to the more wealthier, whiter schools who engage in the same behavior, right? It's not the schools. They're sent to a counselor. That also came out in the lawsuit. So they go to counselors, they go to jail for the same behavior. Kyrie argues, not really. I, I just think they're 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 there just to be there. My, my my principal told me he really don't know how to deal with African American kids. He just like get rid of them, and he was like other principals. If you got if you got into a fight, he probably just like suspend you for like the maximum days he could. Kevin works as a janitor in elementary school in the Riverside neighborhood of Wilmington. Kevin, like Kyrie, also speaks to how a lack of cultural competence leads to the undereducation of economically poor black children. Kevin says, so what does it look like for the kids? It looks real grim, they can't relate. Some of the teachers. They don't understand how to even teach a black child. It's a method, it's a strategy. You just can't come in here with your book knowledge. Book knowledge is not working. You have to have that feel, that understanding of a child the community, and the families. Let me argue, let me, let me add, excuse me, right? Keep this in mind. There's no place you can go in, 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 in the country, there's no university that you can go in the country. I don't care if it's an anthropology department, education department, sociology department. And for the most part, these black American studies departments. Where I'm at. It actually prepares college students to work with poor people of color. William Julius Wilson, one of the most famous sociologists at Harvard University, argues this in his latest book. He's argued this throughout his body of work. So we are self-professed experts. There's no class that taught, that taught me how to understand the cultural contours of these communities. Why do you think research is a multi-billion dollar like myself. We study them. We don't change very much. And we don't intend on doing that. That's not part of our job description. Right? So, so we expect a child from the University of Delaware to come from the educational department and be prepared to help them, right? Keep in mind, they're not prepared to help those students. They're in a crash course while they're working. Lewis dropped out of school in the 10th grade. Much of his emotional behavioral problems began in and out of school after he witnessed his father being killed in front of him. At his home in Wilmington. Lewis noted that he never felt school was a nurturing and supportive place for him and or, and or the challenges that he was struggling with, those emotional challenges. In fact, he recalls several of his teachers not only uh, uh, being, he, he noted that several of his teachers were very disrespectful towards him, but he also recalls several teachers physically abusing him inside of schools. Well, a lot of those stories. Physical abuse by school officials. You feel like teachers cared for you before you dropped out? Lewis. 
lot of my teachers um, were disrespectful. Some teachers told me that I wouldn't be successful in life. Uh, I've even been hit by teachers. I've even been hit a couple of times. I've been choked by teachers, I've been hit, I've been disrespected. I wouldn't say nothing to my mom or nobody about it. I would just take it to the chin. I met Richard at his friend's funeral, who was shot and murdered at 17 in Southbridge, and, and Richard agreed to later do an interview with me. Although Richard dropped out in ninth grade, nonetheless, he spoke about how dropping out of school does not mean you don't understand and appreciate the value of school. So you right here acting white pieces. Created by um, John Oswald, significant in 1986, they did a study in D.C., right, and they argued that black children don't like going well in school because they equate it with acting white. It's a name of the theory, literally. It's what we call the reified concept. Lots of them that are around. Right? We can find very little evidence of poor black children not liking school. Most people think it, though. And maybe they had a bad experience, or they know someone else had a bad Again, the social scientists find any, any data to support the theory. It's kind of like saying black men don't love their children. We can't actually find any data for that either. Or black men don't want to work. We can't find data for that either. <laughs> but most people think it, though. And that's including poor black people. Right? So, so this, 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 this quote or slide underscores the fact that he does like going to school. Other mediating, moderating barriers interfered with his schooling success. Richard, 19, I never thought about going to college, Mr. Yasser, but I, I, I want something better for myself. Because when I got my GED, I was so happy. I, I was so proud of myself. I ain't going to lie. I ran around uh, with my GED in my hand, almost cried. Because I'm so bad at that. I never even thought I'd, I'd even do, ever do my GED, but I passed that test. Now picture how I'm going to feel. Fifteen PAR members learned some of their educational outcomes. Five few PAR family members enrolled in college. I was working for universities. We also worked with the fourth and the south. Said, anybody comes to your program, you send them here, and we'll take care of everything. Universities are very kind to the project. In and out of Delaware. Two of our family members went to graduate school to get their masters. Three enrolled. Um, Undergraduate school, right? One of the under, 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 one of the partners in undergraduate or, or college um, graduated with a BA, now applying for the masters, and, and, and the two that entered the master's program have completed their master's of arts degrees, and now both are working on their doctorates. In fact, Whoopi, one of the gentlemen, I'll show you a picture of a little bit later, right? He, he he's informing that he tutors. He's at the University of Delaware, and he tutors in, in the sociology department, and he tutors some. The doctor of students in statistics. He's far exceeded my statistical expertise. Right? One of the most involved <coughs> people in the streets of Wilmington. Wilmington's history. I don't say that to sensationalize. I say that because I need us to think about the possibilities in terms of what we can do to change this. I'm begging you. your institutional support and a larger network to help them. 
what other universities aren't doing. If we really wanted to. We've made, so action, right? I talked a little bit about the action. You know, we've done a lot of action, right? Countless instances of action. One way we've done action is through public presentations, right? We far exceeded 100 public presentations at this, at this point. I just stopped counting them. Right? But I do tell them where appropriate, make sure you put that on your CV, like I would tell a doctor to. And you'd be surprised how far that gets you. We've presented places like Ohio State, Yale, Columbia University, you name it. There's nobody in the country doing this work. Another instance of action, very big deal with the University of Delaware. So they got the debut screen, like it was a smaller documentary. Documentaries also caught a lot of attention in Delaware, definitely, and also in the academy, you know, in, in terms of the social sciences. <coughs> you purchase a documentary, pgreport.com, all money and proceeds go to our research account. Approximately six or seven hundred people showed up. Smaller debuting of the film. Now, this has grabbed the attention of Delaware, I promise you. Governor's office was there, city council, mayor's office in Wilmington, civil political leadership, the people from Wilmington, addition to students. So, that panel Website, please come check it out. We also are very, very, very heavy, big, involved with social media. The community forced me to do that. I didn't even know. I didn't realize the power of social media until I got involved. So we probably got about 20, 25,000 followers. We got Twitter, we have um, Facebook, Google Plus, YouTube. Check it out. Very interactive website. We also have a mixed CD project <coughs> that you can access for free. We do the arts a lot as a way to do action. We've organized two street art exhibitions. The latest one, this is two flyers for one street art exhibition, identified 50 local artists, 25 performing artists, right, and the 50 traditional artists produced 276 pieces of art. And the art, right, the theme of the artwork had to be centered around the relationship between structural inequality and physical and it was in the Delaware uh, um, uh, DCCA. I'm gonna mess that up, right? But in any event, um, um, that's a very high-end um, um, art um, um, institution in Delaware. And they gave us the biggest hall. Over 1,300 people showed up. They could only fit 500 people. Right, so there was a fire hazard potential. They didn't shut it down, but we were flagship newspaper gave us a five-day front page series on this project. The only research project at the University of Delaware they've ever done that with. And they've been very kind to us ever since. They're, these are their photos. We took them to the streets for this. The gentleman right here, Mr. Grimes, 
actually showing you his bullet wound, and uh, he got shot about a block away. Uh, I didn't know what he was about to show me, right? So that's why I'm going to back it up. And then he's pulling out his pants, then explaining. <laughs> but he wants to know me to know that he's A, happy that we're out here capturing the story, and B, that he really is from the streets. And Kayla sees this for the light, but she's showing us her, um, her um, scarf from being stabbed in the back of her arm. to fairness commission. They had a bunch of state hearings in fall 2015. 
two informational sessions, four public hearings. We're now in the implementation phase. We're also interested in organizing a state hearing on the school prison pipeline um, um, phenomenon. I also have chaired the root causes committee, right? Um, 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 stuff. Share the Sweet Prison Pipeline for the Access to Fairness Commission. I consulted with this group, IMAT, this is Reverend Sylvester Beemuth, right? And he's, you know, him and the group, clergy, right, of going after racism within state government and government. And I consulted with this group. Secretary has just recently stepped down. Um, and I implore you, I encourage you to replicate or reduce this um, here in Pennsylvania.